leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Despite a record number of new drug approvals this year, the return on R&D investment for the largest pharmaceutical companies continues to fall, according to a new report from the Deloitte Center for Health Solutions and Deloitte's R&D Services Group. In fact, the report finds R&D returns for this group of companies have fallen to their lowest point since Deloitte began tracking them in 2010. We spoke to Neil Lesser, principal with Deloitte Consulting in the Life Sciences Strategy Practice, and a leader in the Research and Development Strategy Practice, about the report, the pressures on the industry that are hurting returns, and what R&D strategies companies can pursue that might reverse the trend. Neil, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Danny. We're going to talk about Deloitte's new report on the pharmaceutical industry's return on investment in R&D, the sixth annual pharmaceutical innovation study you've done, and what it says about the challenges the industry faces and, and potential strategies companies could pursue. Let's start with the main findings for the 12 large companies you have followed throughout the history of the report. What's happened to R&D returns? How, how good is the pipeline? And how successful have they been at getting new products approved? Well, thanks, uh, first of all, for uh, having me on, Danny. It's, uh, and we've done this before. It's great to talk to you about this. You know, this is the sixth year in a row that we've um, profiled the return on investment from uh, the large biopharmaceutical companies that we follow year over year. And uh, this year, unfortunately, the news in the report is not as good as we had hoped for. Last year, in the 2014 report, we saw a slight uptick in the internal rate of return. Uh, and this year, we saw a tick down again to its lowest level uh, since we started measuring this cohort of 12 companies, down to 4.2%. Um, I think um, there are a few positives uh, that you can take away from the report. You know, as you've seen in uh, other um uh, you know, in the news in other in other areas, um, you know, there, there's been sort of a record number of approvals uh, coming out of global regulatory authorities, which I think is uh, is very positive news, and we profile that in our report. And you know, there is uh, there are still you know quite a few areas of unmet medical need that if you are producing something that um, the market sees of value that addresses that unmet medical need, it'll be it'll be approved, it'll be reimbursed, and you can command uh, a return for that investment. But uh, for the most part, the companies that we profile in the report have seen their, um, the, you know, the value proposition associated with their pipelines decrease year over year. And, um, 
you know, that's that's sort of the high level picture of what we found. Well, you've identified three major drivers of rising R&D costs, portfolio inefficiencies, infrastructure overheads, and complexity. C- can you just walk us through those? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just sort of the macro picture on cost is one of the main root causes of the decline over time in internal rate of return. So since we started doing the study in 2010, we've seen a 33% increase in the R&D cost per launched asset. It's up to a billion six in uh, 2015. And you're right, we do ascribe um, uh, three major factors uh, to that increase in cost, particularly in the large biopharma cohort of 12 that we've been following since 2010. You know, the first is around portfolio choice. So, you know, there's a lot of big uh, expectations associated with a large biopharmaceutical company, a lot of growth expectations that you need a lot of shots on goal in order to get make your way through the very risky process of biopharma R&D. And uh, unfortunately, what that means is that there, while there will be some bets that have a justified risk-return profile, there's many where the risk-return profile simply isn't there. And that ends up winnowing its way out of the late stage pipeline in the in the in the way of late stage terminations, which is obviously a catastrophic failure for any large company. And we we have seen the amount of late stage terminations over time take a significant amount of value out of the late stage pipeline. So that's the first thing. The second thing point you raise is around infrastructure. And um it's you know it's obviously clear that uh, most of the companies that we profile are large organizations that have built up a lot of infrastructure uh, over time in the form of labs, in the form of personnel and resources that add a tax, you know, quote unquote tax to the um, to the cost of developing and commercializing a successful drug. So, and we we actually found in our study we look at the relationship between infrastructure. Um, and scale and the ability to generate long-term returns. And we actually found an inverse relationship. So the smaller companies within our study actually are able to generate longer term, higher longer-term returns than ones that have higher R&D costs um, and, um, and, and larger sizes. And then the final uh, point that you made was around complexity. And, and we think you know, that um, manifests itself in two major ways. The first way is around um, just the complexity associated with decision-making and governance. Again, in large, complex organizations, that extra tax uh, evidences itself in the form of um, elongated times and complexity associated with decision-making processes. But the other comp- angle on complexity has to do with the variable cost of drug development. And as many of these companies have started to pursue more specialty niche indications, which um, you know take longer to recruit, they, um, they require a lot more data points and a lot more procedures than traditional primary care areas. And that adds to the cost burden associated with um, with enrolling and uh, patients in clinical trials and, and conducting clinical trials overall, that we think the, the, the confluence of those three things has really compounded the cost of clinical development over time. One thing that's astounding that you found in, in the study is that companies are more likely to return cash to shareholders than invest in R&D acquisitions or product licensing. Now, that that may indicate that assets have gotten a bit frothy in terms of price, but it can also suggest an acknowledgement that these companies are aware of their own failings and a 
reflect a, a lack of confidence in their abilities. What's going on? Yeah, I, th- I think that's exactly right. I, I you know, it, I, I think we've reached uh, an inflection point in the industry where, you know, uh, there are, you know, you're right to, to note that there, the valuations are, are higher, um, you know, and, um, and, uh, you know, CFOs really have a choice to make around, you know, what they do with their, you know, with their shareholders' money. And I think, um, you know, certainly we've seen an increase in acquisition activity. There's no no doubt about that. You know, an increase in external innovation. And, you know, there's no shortage of money going toward that. But I think what what, we, what we've seen and profiled in the report is that, you know, there's there's as good a chance that a CFO is going to is going to look at either an internal choice or an external choice on investing in innovation and returning that money to shareholders. Given the valuations that we've seen, there's sort of an equal chance of that happening. Which you know, which which certainly um, you know, uh, I, I think backs up the contention that the return on on investment for um, for you know for biopharmaceutical innovation has reached a point where you know you can ask those types of questions about how good of an investment is in it is it, and uh, you know the return numbers that we cite in the report are, are certainly evidence of that. One of the things you did differently this year was include a second cohort of companies as a point of comparison. How were these companies selected? How how do they differ from the original cohort? Right. So we uh, thought, um, you know, we recognize that since we've started doing this report in 2010, um, that, you know, an increasing amount of value is being generated outside of the large, you know, the 12 largest biopharmaceutical companies. And we wanted to find a way to uh, recognize that somehow. So we went back three years and picked four large uh, specialty biotechs, which are, you know, are obviously of a different character in a number of different ways from the large biopharma companies and measured their return on investment and some of the underlying root causes to see if their models, you know, were able to produce, you know, returns that, um, you know, that, that, uh, outperformed our original cohort. And, and that's exactly what we found is that the extension cohort of those four companies over the three years that we profiled them versus the, the same three years for the, for our uh, original cohort outperformed in terms of the aggregate IRR measure, as well as in looking at the, um, the you know the underlying root causes to us are are looking at peak sales per asset and the cost to develop an asset and we found that those companies were able to to produce assets that had 130% higher average peak sales and 25% lower average cost to develop an asset so there's something in their business models and i think you can relate some of it back to some of the uh, points that i raised earlier around just the amount of cost and complexity and infrastructure that that big Biopharma has these specialty biotechs are able to produce value in the absence of that, and I think that's a lesson learned for for our for our original cohort. Well, you argue that the second cohort points to a path forward for the industry by highlighting some of the points of distinction in their R and D strategies. I thought we could walk through those and have you explain that the first part of that is a focus on specialized therapeutics. Yeah, so um, you know, we we do profile um, looking at um, you know the, how the therapeutic area uh, pipelines have changed over time, and I would say two points on on focus. For the first thing we looked at is um, uh, just how, you know, as in the industry overall, I'd say it's it's less um, differentiating the original from the extension cohort. The 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 industry overall has 
focus more on specialized therapeutics. I don't think that's a headline that anyone would find surprising. And um, the um, uh, you know the original cohort has done so as well. Even in traditional primary care areas such as cardiovascular, the trend has been more towards specialized therapeutics. The PCSK9s are a great example of that. Um, I think what differentiates the um, extension cohort from some of the larger players in our original cohort is the amount of focus that they're able to provide. In terms of therapeutic area. Right. That's the focus in terms of therapeutic area that I was referring to. The second piece, though, is with regard to the number of, of areas that they focus on and the volatility of their pipelines. So what we actually looked to relate this year was how much um, does volatility in terms of therapeutic area focus impact your ability to generate long-term returns? And what we found was the companies that were less volatile in terms of the amount of value that's in and out of therapeutic areas year over year, or, and even the volume of assets that are in and out of therapeutic areas year over year, those companies that had less volatility generated higher longer-term returns. And um, you know, the, the extension cohort were some of the ones that have generated the highest returns with the least amount of volatility, which I think speaks to the fact that investing, you know, picking a few areas and investing long-term capabilities, not only in the scientific and technical capabilities that drive your innovation engine, but also in the regulatory and commercialization capabilities for pull-through, have, uh, you know, our strategies that we think are built to last in terms of generating higher, longer-term returns. Well, as you've said here and, and note in the report, bigger is not necessarily better. I think there are those who believe there are greater efficiencies in size, and, and we've seen that drive a fair bit of M&A activity over the recent past. Does this call that strategy into question? What, what are you seeing in terms of whether it makes sense to get bigger? Yeah, I think those are those are company specific choices around to acquire and not to acquire. And certainly, there are scale benefits that a large organization gets beyond the R and D organization. That you know that can make a lot of sense when you evaluate them on a company by company, uh, a company specific um, uh, case. So I think what I would say is, um, you know, acquisition is one arrow in the quiver. Of, uh, you know, of a, of a biopharmaceutical company in terms of external innovation. You know, we've certainly recognized through our report year over year that external innovation is an increasingly important tool for biopharma to supplement their internal innovation engines. Um, what, what I would say is acquisition isn't the only way to be successful. Um, you know, many of the companies, both in the original, but in particular the extension cohort, do lots of great things with um, the types of acquisitions. Uh, sorry, the types of external innovation that they focus on, the stages in which they play around with external innovation and joint ventures and partnerships, you know, the types of players that they're entering into partnerships with and the deal structures that they use, you know, uh, uh, leveraging different types of optionality at different points in the the R&D value chain across different therapeutic areas. It's important to match up the right tool um, with what you're trying to accomplish, taking it, you know, advantage of early science in an open way versus, uh, you know, looking for at different tools in, in the later stage to fill pipeline gaps. You know, th- those are all, all things that make a lot of sense in their proper context for specific companies. There's a, a positive case to be made for the industry as a whole in terms of the growth of the pipeline and shorter pathways to approval and the production of higher value drugs. 
as you look at this report, is, is this a matter of external forces outside the control of large biopharmaceutical companies, things that they can't control? Or is this really finding things that they're to blame for in terms of the problems they're having with R&D productivity? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. I, I think, um, you know, certainly there are external forces, as you, you, know, you noted, a couple that were both positive and negative, right? There's, there's you know, an increasing amount of regulatory pathway um, um, uh, ease, Not uh, that's probably a, a bad word to choose, but uh, because the regulatory pathway continue, you know, is is complicated and and it's and it's in place for a reason, right, to protect patient safety and drive innovation. But there are a few mechanisms that regulators are using, like accelerated approval pathways, to get therapies that address unmet medical need to market in a more timely way. You know, I think that that's a positive trend. Um, you know, what biopharma needs to watch. To, to certainly be uh, aware of, and it's certainly on everybody's radar screen, is looking at uh, you know the uh, you know the increasing uh, call to have the value of therapies and the price that's being uh, commanded match the um, you know match the match the value proposition associated with that therapy, and I think you know continued. Uh, questions uh, globally around that are going to call into question the return of things that, you know, the public and regulators and governments and payers feel are, you know, suspect in terms of uh, innovation. On, on, the other, on the other side, though, you know, I think a lot of the things that we talked about before in terms of cost, complexity, infrastructure, um, focus, those are things that I think, you know, they're difficult problems to solve, particularly in very large, complicated organizations. But I think those are things that are addressable in the near term and could have a demonstrable impact on uh, a biopharma's ability to return, um, to, to, uh, to earn a return on their investment. Neil Lesser, principal with Deloitte Consulting in the Life Sciences Strategy Practice and leader in the Research and Development Strategy Practice. Neil, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks a lot, Danny. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.